Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, 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 and welcome back to another episode of Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer, and I have forgotten to say my name on the past two to three episodes of this podcast, so I'm going to re-emphasize it here. I'm Tori Telfer, and if you know one thing about me, you should know that I have a book coming out on February 23rd called Confident Women. It's about female swindlers. And if you want to pre-order it at your favorite local bookstore and then tag me in a photo of it or of you on Instagram, let's just say we'd be best friends. I'll put links to some of my favorite local bookstores in the show notes where you can buy it. Anyway, it's going to be a fun book and we're going to talk (laughs) more about it next episode. Don't worry. But today, my friends, we are talking about a woman who, let me back up, I don't really like the TV show Snapped. Um, I think the whole idea is really, um, it kind of reduces crimes down to something too simplistic. People don't really snap, and I think the idea that women are just going around snapping right and left and stabbing their husbands, you know, is, um, again, like I said, overly simplistic. But the crime we're talking about today... There's a bit of a snapped vibe going on. There's a bit of a snapping. And the female criminal in question, her parents do say that she snapped. Now, as usual, it's kind of like, okay, maybe she snapped, but also the snapping took place over several months. And also she had a long history of things leading up to this. So really, can we say she snapped? No, I don't think so. But there's definitely that vibe in this episode more so than in other episodes I've done. Are you confused yet? Don't worry, it'll all make sense soon. Just kidding, it won't, because this case is weird. (laughs) There's a lot. There's a lot going on here. Um, Much of it very sad. This case is an example of entitlement. This we are about to meet abroad who is so deeply entitled. It's weird to hear a case of a woman who's crimes do seem directly linked to a sense of entitlement. You could argue that like Ted Bundy's crimes stemmed from a certain entitlement or something like that. Um, But we don't often see this specific like malignant narcissism in female criminals. I'm hesitating because as I'm saying that, I'm thinking really fast about all the female criminals I know about. And I'm sure there are some that would prove me wrong. Regardless, I do think this is a very unique case. Once you find out about what the crime is, you might already know if you recognize her name. Uh, You'll see why this is an extra unique case. Yeah, today we're going to meet a woman who everyone was shocked when she did what she did. She is a white, Harvard-educated mother of four And, you know, when people see someone like that, they come at it with a lot of assumptions, including, like, she could never hurt a fly, Um, but she could. I also need to be perfectly honest with you and tell you that today's broad has the exact same haircut that I do, and I just, every time I looked at photos of her, I was like, no, please let her hair be different this time. No, but it never was. So um, one of us is going to have to change our hair, and it might have to be me. All right. 
We're not traveling too far back in time, guys. The main crime we're going to talk about happened in 2010. But we're going to back up a little and start in the state of Massachusetts, the year 2002, when something really strange happened at a local pancake restaurant. and you're taking your family to get some pancakes. It's 2002. You're in Peabody, Massachusetts. You decide to head to IHOP because they know pancakes. Maybe you've had a frazzled morning getting your two kids out of the door, but now you're here at IHOP and ready to eat. You grab a booster seat, it happens to be the last one they have available, and you settle in at your table. All around you, you can smell coffee, bacon, and maple syrup. You probably didn't notice that another mom walked in right behind you. She's there with her family, too. She also wants pancakes. She also needs a booster seat. But the IHOP manager tells her that, unfortunately, there are no more booster seats. This makes the other mom really, really angry. She starts cursing. We were here first, she yells. She looks around the restaurant to see who dared to take the last booster seat, and her eyes land on you. She storms over. She demands that you give her the booster seat. But you say, no, your kid is using it. This infuriates her. She screams at you. The manager comes over to calm her down, but she keeps screaming. I am Dr. Amy Bishop, she roars. The manager tells her to leave, and that's when she does it. She winds up her fist, and she punches you in the side of the head. Later, she gets two misdemeanor charges, disorderly conduct and assault. She starts telling everyone she knows that you were the problem, that you confronted her. The charges against her are dismissed. After all, she's Dr. Amy Bishop. You return to your normal life with your two children. You have no idea how dangerous that woman really is. In the bizarre saga of Dr. Amy Bishop, the IHOP incident is fairly minor, but it's also weirdly significant. It's like a miniature version of her most horrible crime. It's like a dollhouse room. Everything is there in place. It's just smaller than it is in real life. Amy Bishop was incredibly entitled. She had a temper that would explode into violence at the slightest provocation. She was the sort of person who would scream at her local ice cream truck driver so many times that eventually he just stopped coming down her street. At IHOP, her violence showed but it was just the tip of the iceberg. Since the IHOP charges against her were dismissed, Amy Bishop had a squeaky clean record when she applied for a new job about one year after the pancake incident. In 2003, she got a tenure-track job as a biology professor at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. The university was impressed by her resume. She had a Ph.D. from Harvard. 
They didn't know that she'd padded her resume a bit, blurring the edges, making certain things look a little more impressive than they actually were. They were just excited to have someone from Harvard come and teach at their school. But once Amy arrived at the university and actually started teaching, the problems began. Her students didn't like her. She'd yell at them. She'd throw them out of her lab. Most of them ended up transferring to different labs so that they didn't have to work with her at all. It wasn't that Amy was a fraud. She really did go to Harvard. She had received large grants for her work, and she was working on an invention that her university president praised. But she wasn't publishing very much, which was a prerequisite for tenure. And she was really strange. She published a paper in a vanity press where she listed her husband and her three young daughters as her co-authors. One of her colleagues called it creepy and kind of weird. In March of 2009, Amy found out that she wasn't going to get tenure. Even though her colleagues urged her to accept this decision and apply for a new job somewhere else, she wouldn't do it. She appealed, and she hired a lawyer. She learned that someone on her tenure review committee had called her crazy, and she tried to use that as proof of gender discrimination. But the professor who had said it only doubled down. I said she was crazy multiple times, and I stand by that, he said. This woman has a pattern of erratic behavior. She did things that weren't normal. She was out of touch with reality. These people are against me, Amy ranted to a colleague. By November of that same year, her appeal was denied. It was official. She wouldn't have a job there next year. So she waited a few months, and then she started going to a shooting range. Just like at IHOP, she hadn't gotten what she wanted, and she was determined that someone would pay. Let's back up to the first time that Amy held a gun. Amy Bishop was born in 1965. She grew up in the sweet little city of Braintree, Massachusetts, in a Victorian house with intricate molding and a pretty covered porch. Her father was a professor at Northeastern. And from a young age, Amy cared about school, about grades, about achieving. She wanted to be a scientist. She had asthma, and she was often in the emergency room because of it, and so she decided as a kid that she was going to be a scientist so that she could find a cure for asthma. She wasn't cool or popular or particularly friendly. As a teenager, she was thin and shy and focused. She played the violin, and she would come home and practice instead of hanging out with friends. Her work ethic was intense. When talent fell short of ambition a journalist for the Boston Globe wrote, relentless determination took over. She may not have been a warm teenager, but there was one person in her life who she loved passionately, her little brother, Seth. He was three years younger than her, and she thought he was just amazing, a genius. Like her, he was smart and quiet. Like her, he played the violin. Once in middle school, Seth was mocked by bullies in the cafeteria who told him to take out his dumb violin and play it. And so Seth did. He took out his violin, and he played so well that the bullies fell silent. In 1985, when Amy was 20, her whole family left their beautiful house to go to her grandfather's wake. And when they came home, they found that thieves had been in their house. 
stripping the pillowcases from Amy and Seth's beds and stuffing them with valuables. Amy's dad marched out and bought a shotgun. And with that, their house went from not having a gun in it to having a gun in it. And as so often happens, the gun brought misery and horror with it. Amy and her dad often clashed. And over a year after the robbery, on the morning of December 6th, 1986, they fought. Since then, both of them have always said that it wasn't a serious fight. Amy once said that she drank the last of the coffee and her father was annoyed that he had to make a new pot. Her father once said that they argued because he tripped over one of her things and then told her she needed to pick up her stuff more, and she didn't like that. But people outside of the family have said that the argument was much worse, that it was serious, that it explained what happened next. Amy's mom was already out of the house. Her dad left, or stormed out, and her brother left too, eventually, and so then Amy was alone in the house. She says she started getting scared, thinking about the robbery. So she took out her father's shotgun and loaded it. Then she tried to unload it, and the gun went off. The bullet slammed into her bedroom wall. Amy tried to cover up the hole with a book. According to Amy, here's what happened next. She heard her mother and her brother come home. She went downstairs to ask her brother, Seth, to help her unload the shotgun. According to her mother, here's what happened after that. She and her son were unloading groceries in the kitchen when Amy came downstairs holding the shotgun and said she needed help unloading it. Seth reached out to help her. Amy swung the gun around to give it to him, and the gun went off. Oh no, Mom, said Seth, and then he fell back with a hole blown out of his chest. Blood everywhere. After the gun went off and her brother fell backwards, Amy rushed out of the house in a panic, still carrying the gun. At some point, she racked the slide of the gun. In other words, she prepared the gun to fire again. Maybe she thought she was going to have to shoot her way out of town to avoid prison. She ran all the way to a nearby car dealership, where she approached a few mechanics, still holding the gun, and demanded that they give her a car and a set of keys— she told them that her husband was mad at her and that he was going to kill her. The mechanics ran away, and before long, a policeman found her there. She was looking scared and confused. He talked calmly to her, trying to get her to lower the weapon, as another cop crept up behind her and then shouted, Drop the rifle! Drop the rifle! Drop the rifle! Amy dropped the shotgun and was taken to the station in handcuffs. And then... She was let go. The shooting was ruled an accident. That very night, she was back home, where she went to sleep in her parents' bed. She slept with them for months. At Seth's funeral, a friend remembers that Amy looked like a zombie. She never got therapy. Her dad didn't believe in it. Her family didn't move out of that house for years. So every day, Amy ate in the kitchen, where she'd accidentally killed her brother. Instead of therapy, Amy worked. She stopped talking about Seth. 
Her friends knew not to ask her about him. She graduated from Northeastern, where her father taught, and then she went to Harvard to get a Ph.D. in genetics. One year into her time at Harvard, she married a man named Jim Anderson, and they had four children together, three girls and then a son. Amy named her son Seth. He was born on her brother's birthday. Harvard meant everything to Amy. She clung to it like a life raft, and she would bring it up whenever possible. After she got her Ph.D. in 1993, she would introduce herself as Dr. Amy Bishop, Harvard-trained. The irony was that she'd barely gotten her Ph.D. Harvard was tough, and she was also balancing motherhood alongside her studies, and she hadn't excelled there the way she had excelled in college. But you wouldn't know any of that if you looked at her resume or if you spoke to her. Now, Amy wasn't all science all of the time. She joined a writing group where she frequently offended the other writers by telling them that she hated certain parts of their stories. Once, she brought an entire novel to the group and demanded that they read it before she sent it to her agent. Her novels were thrillers, but they had a lot of seemingly autobiographical elements. Her protagonists were of Greek descent, like she was. They had degrees from Harvard, which she always let you know that she did, and they struggled with identities of wife and mother and scholar. More hauntingly, her protagonists were often obsessing over the death of a child, sometimes a brother. Amy was a churchgoer in those days. She'd found religion after her brother died, and her novels are full of what a New Yorker journalist called a deep preoccupation with the concept of deliverance from sin. Also, she was pretty sure that her writing would make her famous. Her husband, Jim, supported her in whatever she did, no matter how unusual. When she told him to stop going by Jimmy and to call himself James because it was classier, he complied. Sure, Amy was awkward and kind of intense, but Jim made no apologies for that. She's a Harvard grad, he told a journalist. You're not going to get gushing out of somebody like that. Sorry. Of course, any supportive partner should accept their spouse's personality, but Jim's support seemed to enable a dangerous narcissism in his wife. In 1993, Amy took a job as a researcher at Children's Hospital Boston, but then she quit a few months later after her boss told her that her work wasn't good enough. Amy was incredibly upset at her boss, and so was Jim. He told a friend that he wanted to, quote, shoot him, bomb him, stab him, or strangle him. Less than a month later, Amy's old boss stood in his kitchen, eyeing a suspicious package. He didn't like the looks of it. The Unabomber was active that year, and people had weird-looking packages on the brain. So Amy's old boss carefully cut the tape that held the top of the package in place and gently pulled up one side of the lid to peek inside. Inside, he saw a pipe bomb waiting to go off as soon as someone took off the entire lid. He called for his wife and ran out of there. Both Amy and her husband were questioned about this pipe bomb incident, but they were never charged with anything. Amy was like Teflon. Criminal charges just didn't seem to stick to her. Years later, someone would tell the press, at some point in this woman's life, her bad behavior should have been recognized. People kept sweeping her bad behavior under the rug, and now we're paying a tremendous price for that. 
Amy may have had superhuman luck when it came to law enforcement. A luck, quote-unquote, that people who weren't white, Harvard-educated moms didn't seem to get. But she wasn't happy, not even close. No matter how hard she worked, or how much organic food she fed her children, or how often she mentioned Harvard, life wasn't working out for Dr. Amy Bishop the way she wanted. She didn't have a glittering job or a ritzy address. Jim wasn't working much, and they were having money problems. She felt like everyone was out to get her. She felt like she was constantly being cheated out of things that she deserved. When she collaborated with eight other authors on a paper about something called Deficient Myocardial Cyclic AMP Concentrations, her name was listed second in the list of nine authors. Second. Not first. When Amy saw this, she exploded at her colleagues. One of them told the New York Times that her reaction was something emotional that we never saw before in our careers. Amy felt like she deserved the number one slot in everything, and she couldn't stand that she didn't have it. In one of her novels, she wrote about the era of the supermom who's a great wife, mother, and CEO. If you weren't all three, she wrote, you're a failure. In 2003, Amy thought she had found a solution to her problems. She would take her fancy Harvard degree to a smaller school. She'd turn herself into the big fish in a small pond, and everyone would be impressed by her. So she got a job at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Her neighbors in Massachusetts were thrilled to see her go. She'd made enemies of everyone on her block because she wouldn't stop yelling at their children when they had the audacity to play basketball outside. She'd also punched a mom at IHOP. Her neighbors watched her moving truck pull away, and someone said, Ding dong, the witch is dead. Then they all ordered pizza. But being a tenure-track professor didn't make all of Amy's problems go away. Her students disliked her. Her colleagues thought she was strange, insane, or downright scary. When her father-in-law came to visit, he found that Amy and her family were living in a shocking amount of clutter. At one point, he was having a conversation with Amy when he accidentally said something that made her mad. She just totally changed, he said. I have never seen anyone before or after whose face, whose body language changed so 100%. I saw a major difference in her eyes. The color of her skin even changed. It was menacing. He left that same day. And then, in 2009, Amy didn't get tenure. Amy had thought a lot about guns throughout her life. There was the terrible death of her brother, of course. Hard not to think about guns after that had happened. But Amy had also thought a lot about a different sort of gun. Not a gun that went off accidentally, but a gun that went off on purpose. In one of her novels, a protagonist jokes about bringing a gun to a potluck to wreak death and destruction. Later, that same protagonist muses, It was a wonder none of his ex-employees didn't come back to the lab shooting. 
A lot of Americans were thinking about this sort of thing in 2010. But they were thinking about it in fear, and not, like Amy, as a sort of daydream. It was the era of mass shootings in America. The year after the Fort Hood massacre, three years after Virginia Tech, two years before the Aurora Theater shooting, almost three years before Sandy Hook, and so on and so forth, a terrible list stretching forward and back for decades. What Amy was about to do was a familiar script to Americans. The only thing surprising about it was Amy herself. She was a woman, a woman whose past had been swept under the rug. On February 12th, 2010, Amy Bishop spent the morning at work and then drove back to her house and put a pistol in her purse. She had a faculty meeting that afternoon, so she returned to campus. She was wearing a plaid blazer and a red sweater. She walked into room 369R in the Shelby Center for Science and Technology. She sat there during most of the meeting, silent. This was unusual for her. She often talked during meetings. But there was something awkward about this meeting. This was a meeting about the next semester, about the future. And everyone knew Amy wouldn't be there next semester. One of the people attending the meeting was a professor named Deborah Moriarty, who was Amy's friend, as much as Amy had friends. Amy and Deborah were planning to write a grant together. At the meeting, Deborah noticed that Amy was kind of quiet, and she thought to herself that she should ask Amy later how her job search was going. And then Deborah put her head down and continued to take notes. She was looking down at her paper when she heard a sound so loud that she thought the walls must be falling in on her. She looked up. Dr. Amy Bishop, Harvard-trained, had a gun in her hand, and she was firing it. Amy wasn't foaming at the mouth, or waving the gun around, or acting erratic. She was firing very intentionally at one person, and then another. She was aiming at their heads. She shot the chair of her department, Gopi Podilla, who had steadily supported her work. She shot Stephanie Monticciolo, a staff assistant who was taking the minutes. She shot Adrielle Johnson, who studied gastrointestinal physiology. She shot Maria Ragland Davis, a plant scientist. Luis Cruz Vera, a molecular biologist. Joseph Leahy, a biology professor. Amy had lived her life worshipping at the altar of knowledge and academic achievement, and yet here she was, mowing down people who had dedicated their lives to the things she loved. She was killing them, and she was killing everything they could have done, their research, the grants they hadn't finished writing yet, the classes they didn't get to complete, the cures they never got to find. When Deborah Moriarty realized what was happening, she dove under the conference table. She crawled as fast as she could towards Amy's legs, and she grabbed one of them. Amy, don't do this, she said, looking up. Think about my grandson. Think about your daughter. Amy looked down at Deborah, her friend. Amy's eyes were cold, and they seemed, to Deborah, full of actual evil. Amy raised her gun and pointed it right at Deborah. She pulled the trigger. Click. 
The gun had jammed. It didn't go off. Deborah scrambled out of the room as Amy followed her, still pulling on the trigger. Deborah screamed, somebody help us, and then lunged back into the conference room where someone else barricaded the door with a coffee table and another person called 911. There was blood all over the room. Six people were shot. Three would die. Outside the room, Dr. Amy Bishop finally stopped trying to get her gun to shoot again. She walked downstairs. She found a bathroom, threw the gun and her blood-stained plaid blazer into the trash. She went out, borrowed a student's cell phone, and called her husband to come and pick her up. The police picked her up instead. Two and a half years after the mass shooting, Amy Bishop walked into an Alabama courtroom wearing a red jumpsuit, a bulletproof vest, and shackles. It was there that she pled guilty to one count of capital murder and three counts of attempted murder. Capital murder is basically murder plus. Murder that is somehow even more terrible than quote-unquote regular murder. Capital murder would be something like killing a policeman or a fireman killing and committing another crime, like arson or terrorism, killing more than one person. Amy had pled guilty to avoid the death penalty. She was sentenced to life in prison without parole. There was some chatter that she might be extradited to Massachusetts to stand trial for her brother's death. And Amy actually said that she wanted to be tried for it because she wanted to show that she was innocent. But the extradition never took place. Since Massachusetts didn't have the death penalty, and Amy was already in an Alabama prison for life without the possibility of parole, there was no point in prosecutors trying her again. There was no way to get her a more severe sentence. In prison, Amy continued to write. She also wrote a rap song. She claimed that the other inmates used it as their anthem. Knowing Amy, she probably thought it was the best rap ever written. Here we are, sitting in jail. Let me go ahead and tell you our tales, it went. We sleep and dream our way out of here. Our powerlessness is very clear. When she wasn't rapping, she filed numerous appeals, and she didn't apologize to her victims once. It wasn't until five years after the shooting when she finally hand-wrote an apology on one of her appeals. I am terribly sorry for the victims and their families and my family, it read. In response to this, one of her surviving victims, Dr. Joseph Leahy, said the most damning thing one could say about Amy. Dr. Bishop has ceased to exist in my world. She just doesn't exist, he said. In a way, Amy had ceased to exist in the world at large by then. There had been so many mass shootings after hers. So many that when Mother Jones compiled a database of all the mass shootings in America, they didn't even include Amy's. Of course, when Amy was first arrested, the country was highly aware of her crime. Mass shooters were almost never female. It was hard to wrap your mind around it. And as if her crime at the University of Alabama hadn't been shocking enough, the big reveal that she had killed her brother back in 1986 really captured the public's attention. 
In long-form articles about Amy, theories about Seth's death often took up more space than the writing about the mass shooting itself. People wondered, had Amy been bad for years, a murderer since she was a teenager? Had the old police chief in Braintree, Massachusetts, covered the whole thing up? Had Amy's mother kept a horrible secret for years, claiming that the shooting of her son was an accident, even though she knew it was a cold-blooded murder? In 2013, a reporter from The New Yorker named Patrick Radden Keefe spent significant time talking to Amy in prison, talking to her parents, and combing through Amy's novels for hints of what really happened on the terrible day when Seth Bishop died in a pool of his own blood. An anonymous source who knew the bishops gave Patrick Radden Keefe some secondhand information that the fight between Amy and her father that morning had been really awful. This source said that Amy's mother had called a mutual friend of theirs after the fight, saying, there's been a terrible fight here. It's bad. If we believe that the fight was terrible, then a new theory starts to emerge. Maybe Amy had brought the gun downstairs intending to scare her father. Or worse, maybe Amy had marched into the kitchen thinking her father was there, not her brother. Maybe Amy's bullet was intended to hit someone, but it had just hit the wrong person. Patrick Radden Keefe, the reporter, told this theory to both Amy and her parents. All three of them denied it. But he found a passage in one of Amy's novels that seemed telling. In the novel, the protagonist is mad at her friend, and so she picks up a rock and throws it. But the rock flies past her friend and accidentally hits her little brother, Luke, in the head. The novel says, He fell back like a toy soldier. He never knew what hit him. Whatever really happened on December 6, 1986, one thing seems clear. From that moment on, Amy was a haunted woman. It changed the course of her entire life. She told the reporter that she still saw her brother sometimes. Sometimes, in prison, she'd look up, and he'd be there, sitting on the edge of her bed. That's it for today, folks. If you'd like to see photos of the people involved in this episode, you can go to Instagram.com slash Criminal Broads. Um, I actually wrote an article a couple years ago about female mass shooters for The Atlantic. I'll post it in the show notes. I didn't write about Amy Bishop in it. It's so sad that we have multiple examples of all these things. It was Right after that shooting at the YouTube headquarters, I don't know if you remember, um, but it was a female shooter. No, she didn't kill anyone, thankfully, but she, then she um, killed herself. Anyway, if you're interested in reading the article, you can find it in the show notes. Next week, I'm going to meet you back here for a lighter topic. I'm going to cover one of the stories in my upcoming book, which is about real life con women. So if you like a good swindle, if you like a good scam, if you like a 
gregarious grifter, then come on back and we're going to hear the tale of one of them next week. For this week, I would love to thank this week's patrons. We've got a fantastic crew here today. Thank you all. Um, Karen S.M., Max, Rhonda G. Rhonda is my mom's name, but this is not my mom. Just another beloved Rhonda in my life. We have patron Kristen J., Liv H., Karen E., and Kim. Thank you all so much for supporting the show and making it possible. Everyone else, if you'd like to become a patron too, you can go to patreon.com slash criminalbroads. And um, yeah, I think that's all. I'll see you here next week for a story that is a bit more rollicking, but you all know the drill. I mean, at the end of the day, someone is probably going to end up in prison. Like my quote unquote lighter episodes are only light up to a point. This is, after all, a true crime podcast. All right. Big thanks to Jill Collins, my research assistant, Jennifer Longworth of Bourbon Barrel Podcasting, my editor. The music is by Stereo Dog Productions. That's Dan Pearson and Peter Mannheim. And the intro and conclusion are sung by Anna Telfer, a beautiful actress in L.A. who also happens to be my sister. I'll see you all here next week. Until then, take care. Bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.